Um, so I'm the youth pastor, and uh, one, one of the, Lisa's the other one, and I already forgot something. So I'm supposed to make announcements. It's not strange that I forget things. I'm a youth pastor. So um, the, these yellow sheets right here, uh, these are our calendars. Um, they have some of them out here. If you are interested in anything we're doing in student ministry, please come and grab one of these. One of the first things you'll see on here coming up this month, uh, January 20th, is a, the Hot Tamale Luncheon. I did not name that. Uh, that's all Elise is doing. And I will not be there because it's all for girls. So um, please, if you are a, um, a mom in the congregation, uh, please uh, consider attending that and, and helping Elisa have a, have a great time there. Um, so Tom has been talking through uh, this series of questions that people have for Jesus. Uh, and this week is not only our student ministry service Sunday, but it's also a transition to the second half of his sermon series where he's going to be talking about the apostles in the book of Acts and their interactions with people and showing how they had great love and, and care for the people that they were communicating with um, based on the way that they interacted with them. We see this. And much of the, the book of Acts is about the, a man named Paul and the way that he interacted with people. And so, um, so today, to start this off, we're going to take a look at um, two, uh, two different sermons that Paul spoke during his time, one to some Jews in a synagogue and one to um, a group of philosophers and, and different types, all different types of people at a place in, in Athens, a special place in Athens. And when we, when we uh, take a look at these two, we're going to compare them and we're going to consider what we can learn about the ways that we interact with people based on Paul's example. Um, and I, I want to take just a second and tell you why I'm actually really excited about this series when Tom gave me the opportunity to introduce it. Um, I'm really excited because I, I want to understand my own heart a little bit better. I think that, um, that too often I am unwilling to do the hard work of building relationships that the gospel calls me to do. And I wonder if any of you today would consider that that's a, a struggle for you as well. That building relationships is something we cannot avoid. Relationships are all around us every day. We're interacting with people all around us, but for some reason it's really difficult to build those relationships. And, and, I, and I was thinking about this, and why is it so hard? And, and I think that um, a lot of it is because, it, it, quite simply, it just makes me very uncomfortable to do this. It's, it's hard to get to know people well enough to really understand them. It might be hard because it takes a lot of time. It might be hard because it, it requires us to reveal a little bit more about ourselves than we would like. It, causes, it requires us to be um, a little bit more vulnerable than we're used to. Um, but when we keep people at an arm's length that way, when we give in to our discomfort, I think that we're not really living out the gospel. Um, so the question I'm going to ask is, is, should we really let our discomfort rule us like that? Uh, Penn and Teller are a famous comedy duo. You've probably heard of them. Penn is the big guy with the long hair. And Teller is his little buddy who never says a word. And you can scour the internet, YouTube, and anything, and you will never find a video of him saying anything. They do a pretty good job of keeping up their act. It's pretty incredible. But Penn, the big guy, he is a, a very outspoken atheist. I don't know if you all knew this. But he's very outspoken about his atheism. And, and I found a very interesting video on YouTube the other day about him describing this interaction that we had, that he had, after one of his, um, after one of his shows, this, he was out signing autographs, and this gentleman was waiting off to the side, 
and he, and he was waiting there patiently, and, and Penn, after he finishes doing all of his talking to people, shaking hands, signing autographs, he walks over to this guy who's been waiting, and the guy speaks with, speaks with Penn and encourages him about his show, tells him how great of a job he did, and then, and then hands him a Bible. And Penn um, describes this, this uh, situation, and he gives a, a really interesting account of what happened. He's a, he's a famous He's a famous atheist. He's, a, he's an outspoken atheist. And this is what he has to say about this interaction that he had. If we have the video. And, yeah. Um, I'm sane. I'm not crazy. Oh, you looked me right in the eye. You did all of this. And uh, it was really wonderful. I believe he knew that I was an atheist. But he was not uh, defensive, and he looked me right in the eyes. And he was truly complimentary. It wasn't in any way, it didn't seem like empty flattery. He was really kind and nice and sane and looked me in the eyes and talked to me. And then gave me this Bible. And I've always said, you know, that I, I don't respect people who don't proselytize. I don't respect that at all. If you believe that there's a heaven and hell and people could be going to hell or not getting eternal life or whatever, and you think that, uh, well, it's not really worth telling them this because it would make it socially awkward. And atheists who think that people shouldn't proselytize, just leave me alone, keep your religion to yourself. Uh, how much do you have to hate somebody to not proselytize? How much do you have to hate somebody to believe that everlasting life is possible and not tell them that? I mean, if I believed beyond a shadow of a doubt that a truck was coming at you and you didn't believe it, but that truck was bearing down on you, there's a certain point where I tackle you. And this is more important than that. And I've always thought that, and I've written about that, and I've thought of it conceptually. This guy was a really good guy. He was polite and honest and sane, and he cared enough about me to proselytize and give me a, a Bible. Isn't that fascinating? That's, a, that's an atheist challenging us in the way that we live our lives if we claim to know Christ. That he's telling us that if we don't share the truth of the gospel, that we're not just giving into our social discomfort, we're actually hating people. That's a strong word. We're going to see um, in the book of Acts chapter 13 is where we're going to start. And we're going to take a look at Paul and the way that he communicates with people and how he shows great love and care for the people he's communicating with. So first things first, I'm, I'm, in, uh, I'm in student ministry. So I don't ever take for granted what people may or may not know about the Bible and the context of the scripture that we're reading. So I'm going to take a second, give a grand, a big overview of where, of where Paul is, what he's doing, and why this is important. So the Bible is one big story. It's a grand narrative of God working in and through history, in and through his people. In the Old Testament, he sets aside a people for himself called the Israelites, the Jewish people. And you see this interaction between God and the Israelites all through the Old Testament where God remains faithful to them. He promises them things and he remains faithful to his promises even though the Israelites over and over again deny God and they turn away from him and they, and they, they don't obey him. They are, they are unfaithful to him but God never stops being faithful to them. 
And then you, uh, and it's this, it's this Jewish people that God has set aside that he loves so deeply. And when we get to the New Testament, we get to see the person of Jesus Christ and how the Old Testament, everything in it, all the stories, all the people and the Israelite nation, they, they point forward to this person of Jesus Christ. And the first four books of the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they're stories of the, of the person of Jesus, and they're four different people's accounts of Jesus' life. And one of those guys, um, Luke, he writes like the second chapter in what's going on in the early church. So the first four books of the Bible are covering the same time period. And then the next book, Acts, is covering the next time period. He takes the step forward. It writes the second chapter, so to speak. And in the book of Acts, you see um, the gospel being proclaimed by the people who Jesus gathered to follow him. They're called the apostles. And they go out and they share the gospel first with the Jews, the people that God had set aside from the beginning. He's, the, the gospel is to go to them first. The truth of Jesus is to go to them first and then to the Gentiles and to all the rest of the world. And so Paul comes into a Jewish synagogue here. And he's speaking to the people that God has set aside for himself throughout history. So the people that he's about to talk to know the stories of the Old Testament. They're very familiar with who God is. They have a deep understanding of all the stories that Paul knows too because he grew up as a Jew as well. Paul was a guy who, um, when, when, the, when Christ came and started, and started uh, uh, preaching and, and teaching and getting people to follow him, some people, some of the Jews loved it. And loved him, and they chose to follow him. And some of the Jews hated it, and hated him, and tried to kill him. Eventually did kill him. And a lot of the Jews that hated him were the ones who were of prominent standing in the community. They were the ones who had um, ties politically, and they didn't want to lose their power. When Christ came as a humble servant, he wasn't the, the, the grand king with all the power and authority that, they could, that these rulers could come up and stand next to and rule aside and be conquerors of the world like they thought their king was going to be. Instead, he was a humble servant, and so they, re, they rejected the person of Jesus because they didn't want to give up their power. And Paul was one of these guys who did not accept Christ. Um, man, this is awesome. Now you can't even see me. I just, I just preached backwards. And, um, can you see me well enough? Should I keep, just keep going? Okay, great. Um, so Paul was one of these guys who hated uh, the Christian faith. He hated Christ. And he went around and actually was persecuting and, and killing people who followed Christ. And then one day he has this, um, this interaction with, with Jesus where Jesus blinds him on the road. He's on his way to go kill more Christians. And, and he blinds him on the road and he, and he gets scales over his eyes and he's blind for a couple days. And he has this life-changing experience where Christ captures his heart. He brings him low and he humbles him and he changes him forever. Oh, wow. I'm getting a tan. Um, and, uh, and, and Christ brings him low. I'm going to give one second. Is this good? Great. Thanks, Eric. All right. <laughs> Eric told me I could keep going. Okay. Um, so Christ brings him low, and here's Paul. He, he goes from being one of the, the biggest haters of Christianity to being one of its biggest proponents, becoming one of the most influential Christians in all of history. And so there's stories of him going from church to church, or going from city to city, planting churches and telling people about Jesus. This is awesome. It keeps changing. So, <laughs> so we get to Acts 13, and Paul's in a synagogue, 
And this is toward the beginning of his first journey where he goes about traveling from city to city. He's preaching the gospel and he's planting churches that he would later go back and visit on other journeys. And starting in verse 14, we're going to see how he, how he does three things when he speaks to the Jews. First, he's going to respect them. He's going to show them deep respect in the way he communicates. And he's going to connect with them. And, uh, and then he's going to challenge them with the person of Jesus Christ and who he is. So first, let's take a look at how he respects them. In verse 14, it says, And on the Sabbath day, he went into the synagogue and sat down. After reading from the law and the prophets, the rulers of the synagogue sent a message to them saying, Brothers, if you have any word of encouragement for the people, say it. So let's pause here for a second. When you, when you read through the book of Acts, you see that, um, that this is how Paul typically approaches a city. He comes in and he, uh, he goes to, finds a synagogue. He goes there on a Sabbath day. And they have a normal service. The normal service for them would be to read two scriptures, one from the law, one from the prophets. And then they would invite anyone who feels like they have a, a word of encouragement for the people. They would invite them to speak. So um, actually commentators talk about how this was, a natural, this was a natural open door for the earliest ministers of the gospel. That they would go into these synagogues and they would be welcomed to come and speak about Christ. And that was how many Jews were converted in the very early days after Christ had, um, after Christ had left. Um, <clears throat> so, I wanna, so right away when Paul comes in, he sits down and he shows respect by being patient and sitting through one of their services. He was probably very familiar with how these services go because he was of the Jewish faith himself up until he started, up until his point where Christ uh, converted him. So I want to pay close attention to, to the language that Paul uses now when he retells the story of the Israelites to the people who already know the story. We're going to see how he respects them, and then he connects with them through their common heritage. Um, verse 16, it says, So Paul stood up and motioning with his hands, he said, so he's preaching, he's motioning with his hands, Men of Israel and you who fear God, listen. The God of this people Israel chose our fathers and made the people great during their stay in the land of Egypt. And with uplifted arm, he led them out of it. And for about 40 years, he put up with them in the wilderness. And after destroying seven nations in the land of Canaan, he gave them their land as an inheritance. And all this took about 450 years. Now, one of, one of my um, personal heroes, one of my professors at, uh, the Sem at Covenant Seminary, is Jerem Bars, and he, he wrote a book called The Heart of Evangelism, and the book examines the, the different interactions that Paul had, and he takes a look specifically at this one, and this is what Jerem has to say about this exact passage. He says, how did Paul begin his sermon? Did he commence with an attack on their disbelief, on their failure to obey the law, or on their refusal to worship Jesus? No, Paul began by commending them for their desire to worship God. So Paul is connecting with his audience. He puts himself and his listeners on the same level as he retells the story of their common ancestors, a story which they're certainly very familiar with. And they're so familiar with it that Paul can paraphrase over 450 years in just a couple sentences. But it's important that he does this because he's proving to them, he's proving to them that he has the credentials to talk to them about what he's about to say. So I volunteer as a basketball coach up at the high school. And I'm the, I'm the third coach on the freshman team, so, and I go maybe two or three times a week, and I make about three-quarters of the game. So I'm not their head coach, um, but I am there, and, and, I, and I really, and every, every year, I've been doing it for four years, and every year when I go in to the first day of practice, 
um, they, I, I try to teach the kids something about the game of basketball, and they sort of listen, but they, they, they also know that I really don't have any authority over them because I'm not their teacher. Um, I'm just kind of the volunteer guy that likes to go and play basketball and help out with them. And so they all want to know more about me because they know about the other two coaches. They have them in school. So they want to know more about me. They want to know, did you play basketball in college? Or the biggest question I get is, can you dunk? I'm like, no, I'm, I'm 31. I can't dunk anymore. And, and they, they want, what they're asking for is some kind of credentials for me to prove to them that I know what I'm talking about. So um, the first day of practice, we always do a scrimmage. We just play against each other, and the coaches get out there and play with them. And once I get out there and play with them, and they see that I actually can play basketball a little bit, and I connect with them on the court, then they are every, every day after that, they are much more likely to listen to me and what I have to say. It never fails. It happens every year. And this is, this is, sort of, this is similar to what Paul is doing when he's retelling their common history. He doesn't just walk into the synagogue and say, hey, I'm a Jew, so listen to what I have to say. He's saying, I share your common heritage. I understand everything about your history. And I'm here to show you that the story is continuing in the person of Jesus Christ. He doesn't take for granted the fact that that he is who he is, that he has the background. He makes sure that he respects them and connects with them. And I wonder today if... um, if we, if we often take things for granted, I know that I forget sometimes that I have a responsibility to respect my kids and my wife if I ever think that I can challenge them with the truth of anything I have to say. If I haven't earned their respect, if I haven't connected with them, why should they listen to me? So maybe some of you have coworkers or employees or, or maybe your parents or your own kids out there that you're failing to connect with and to respect before you try to challenge them with any kind of truth that you might have for them. This is what Paul does. And everything he's said so far is right in line with their Jewish understanding. But in the next part, he's going to press forward and he's going to challenge them with the person of Jesus Christ. And, but even in this, he's respectful in the way he approaches it. So listen in verse 26. He says, Brothers, sons of the family of Abraham, and those among you who fear God... To us has been sent this message of salvation. He includes himself and them saying he includes us and he calls them brothers. And then he goes through ten verses explaining who Jesus is and how Jesus is the connection to their Old Testament heritage. And then in verse 36, uh, and, then he, and then he goes on to use um, actual quotations from their Old Testament scriptures. Then in verse 36, he culminates it all and he says this, For David... After he had served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep and was laid with his fathers and saw corruption. But he whom God raised up did not see corruption. Talking about Jesus. Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. And by him everyone who believes is freed from everything which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. Paul's taking their Old Testament heritage and he's taking the person of Jesus Christ and he's connecting them as he moves forward and he's told them their history. Now he's telling them that right now history is being made in the person of Jesus Christ and they are invited to be a part of that. And we know that this is working because of the response that they give in verse 42. It says, as they went out, the people begged that these things might be told them the next Sabbath. Now I've I've been preparing for this sermon for quite a while now. I've been very nervous preparing for it. And I hope that you all would beg me to come back. That would really make my day. But, um, 
but they're begging for him to come back and preach more to him. So the fact that they're doing this is evidence of two things. Number one, it's proof that the Holy Spirit is going before Paul, working in the hearts of the listeners. Without the Holy Spirit going forward ahead of him and working, without that, nothing Paul would ever do would have any effect. It would all be in vain. But he's trusting the Holy Spirit to go ahead of him. And the second thing we learned is that his approach is working. His approach of respecting them and connecting with them based on their common heritage, this is working. So we're looking at Paul's mode of communication, and, and I told you we're going to look through two different sermons, two different interactions. And the first one is easy for Paul to connect with his listeners and care for them, because after all, they're, our, they're his people. They are the Jewish people, the Israelites, who God has set aside, and he himself is one of them. He's in their family, so to speak. So, um, and, and, and Paul proves this, that he has a deep love for them. In Romans chapter 9, verse 3, verse a lot of you are probably familiar with, he says, For I could wish that I myself were cursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. They are the Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. Paul wants them to know, know Christ so badly that he's saying he would be willing to be separated from Christ himself if it meant that they would know Christ. So when Paul's talking with the Jews, it's not hard for him to communicate with care. He's talking to his own people. He has that um, he has the same kind of love that, that many of you, for them that many of you probably have for your own families. He loves them so deeply that just like you love your own families, you, it wouldn't be hard for you to, to connect with them and to, to respect them and to love them. And this is the way Paul is with the Jews. But, but in the next passage that we're going to look at, Acts chapter 17, when we compare the next one, um, Paul sets an example for us now how to respect, connect with, and challenge people who don't share the same background as us. Um, so to give some context, Paul now has ventured on, he's journeyed on, he's gone to a couple other stops, and now he's landed in the city of Athens. Now, in its glory day, the city of Athens was the pride of the known world. It was the place to be. It was the center of culture and philosophy and art. In its glory days, it saw the likes of uh, Socrates and Plato and um, and other philosophers, and it was, it was highly regarded. And now, now, when Paul is getting there, this is hundreds of years past that, but the rich history and heritage that the city had is still there, and it's still a very much respected place, and it's still a center um, for, um, for commerce in the, in, the, in the land of Greece. So at this time, um, uh, so, so when Paul comes into Athens, he does what he normally does. He goes to the synagogue, and he reasons with them through the scriptures. It probably looked much the same as the passage you just looked at um, where, um, in Acts 13. And then after he's done doing that, he does something different. He goes and he starts preaching in the marketplace. Now, this is, a, this is out, of, out of the norm so far for him. He's still early in his first journey, but he, this, this hasn't been recorded yet. So this is, this is a little bit different. He goes in the marketplace, and he starts talking about Jesus. And some, some philosophers hear him, and they invite him to come speak at a place called the, the Areopagus, I think it's pronounced, I'm not sure. But we, but we, we translate that as um, the word Mars Hill. Some of you may have heard that term before. There's some churches that have named themselves the Mars Hill Church. And the idea that they're trying to capture here is that the gospel goes out to all kinds of people. Because at Mars Hill, when Paul is speaking, where he's invited to come speak... He's talking to all different kinds of people. He's not just talking to the Jews anymore. He's speaking to all different kinds of philosophers, 
Um, and two of the, the, philosoph- the groups of philosophers that are mentioned in verse, or in, in verse 18 are the Epicureans and the Stoics. So the, the word goes out of its way to name a couple of them. So we're going to look at what they believe to help us understand the context of what Paul is doing here when he speaks to them. So first of all, the Epicureans, um, they're a, commentar- uh, a commentator said uh, that this, this would be a summary statement of what an Epicurean believes. He says, this life is all there is. You only go around once. So if it feels good, do it. If it doesn't feel good, stay away from it. Avoid what hurts. So the chief goal of life for an Epicurean would be to attain the maximum amount of pleasure um, and the minimum amount of pain. We, we know, we kind of know this word. We've got used the root of it sometimes when we're talking about food and culinary arts. I even have an app on my iPad called Epicurious. I thought that my wife would want to know that, web, that website because it's all about cooking and she's a great cook. Because the way to a man's heart, there is stomach, that's right, and I am no different. Love good food. Um, so, so we're familiar with that term epic, Epicurean. And that's, uh, it's like saying food is the ultimate way of indulging our pleasures. Um, that's kind of the way we use that word. Um, I, bet, I bet we know dozens of people who live life this way. Maximize pleasure, minimize pain. Um, I certainly see it in today's teenagers. Um, when pain happens, we drown ourselves out in video games, don't we, guys? Um, maybe as adults we do it too, where we in, just engross ourselves in work and we avoid the hard things that, the li- that life brings, or, or maybe our hobbies. The second group that, we're, that Paul's taught looking at is the Stoics. Um, their, their summary statement is uh, something like this. I can't control everything that is going on out there, and things that are going on ha- that... And things are going to happen to me that I will not like, but I'm still in charge of myself. Therefore, I'm going to stand tall, stick out my chin, and take it, whatever comes. And that makes sense from what we know of the word stoic, right? A stoic is the type of person that goes through something very difficult, very hard, and comes out of it on the other side with seemingly little or no emotional damage. Um, and I bet we know people like that, too. Maybe, maybe some of us are like that in this room. Um, so th- what Paul's about to say to these people surely can connect with us in some ways. Um, so we're going to see how Paul respects them, connects with them, and challenges them. And just like in the synagogue, he has an invitation to come speak. And so he stands up in the Areopagus, um, and, he, and just like in the synagogue, he addresses them with his opening statement and uses great respect. In verse 22, chapter 17, it says this, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way... You are very religious, for I passed along and observed the objects of your worship. I found also an altar with this inscription, to an unknown God. Now we know that the Bible tells us um, that when Paul enters the city of Athens, he's troubled. It says that his spirit is troubled by by the idols that he sees all around him. But here, when he goes and he and he addresses them right away, when he begins his speech, he doesn't start by criticizing their idol worship. He doesn't, he doesn't challenge them right away with their worship of false gods. Instead, he actually commends them for their religious attitude. And this is important. And this opening statement, it, it's, it's so striking. That I have to stop a second and, and think about this. It, this is what Jerem Bars calls um, building bridges in his book. Uh, what, the Bible says that man is created in God's image. 
Um, and if this is true, if it re- in the beginning when God created man, it says he created us in his image. And if this is true, that means that every human being reflects God in some way. There's no exceptions. And our very humanity reveals to us something about the character of God. So, for example, we're inclined to love people. Well, that's a window into the love, into a picture into the the love that, the kind of love that God has for his people, his creation, for the Israelites and for, for all people. Um, but our love is hindered because, or hindered by our sin. It's not perfect. In the same way we're inclined to be in relationships with people. God has set up life in a way that we cannot escape relationships. Yet our relationships remain broken a lot of times because we're hindered by sin. So we all reflect the image of God in different ways. Maybe we have qualities of leadership or hospitality. Those are all different ways that we reflect God's image. And because every person who has ever lived is under the umbrella of God's creation, God has a deep love for them, a love that is so deep that we're not allowed to ignore it. We cannot ignore the love that God has for his creation, for his people, for everyone around us. Christ certainly understood that truth, and that's why he went to the cross for people he never even met. And Paul understands this as well. And so instead of coming to the Stoics and the Epicureans with disdain in his heart regarding their idol worship, he comes to them with the same love and respect that he goes to his own people, the Jews in the synagogue. If you imagine a Venn diagram um, where I have a a Venn diagram where, oh, it's off center a little bit. One circle is God's world, the other circle is our world, and they overlap. God has created the world now in a perfect diagram, I guess the the big one, our world would be a lot smaller because we're not as big as God. But you get the idea. Everybody's life overlaps with God in some way because we're made in his image. Um, Now, and what, what Paul's doing here when he makes connections with the Epicureans and the Stoics is he's taking a look at their philosophy and he's not tearing it down and saying, you need to get rid of all this philosophy in order to come to God. He's looking at them and seeing where is the overlap in their Venn diagram, where does their life overlap with God's world? And he sees it in their commitment to religiosity. And so he connects with them by explaining that this unknown God that they are worshiping is actually a knowable God. He takes what they already believe and he connects it to the person of Christ. In the same way that he took the Old Testament scriptures, connected them to the person of Jesus for the Jews, he's going to the Epicureans and the Stoics, he's changing his message entirely, but he's still focused on the person of Jesus Christ and he takes their philosophy and connects that to the person of Jesus Christ. So in verse 23, when he, he continues, and this is what he says, What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you, the God who made the world and everything in it, Being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God in hope that they might feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us. So consider what he's doing. He's not going to this group and tearing down all their beliefs and replacing them with the gospel. He's building bridges with them and connecting what they already believe. And he's encouraging them to think critically how their philosophy might be fulfilled in the person of Jesus Christ. Not Jesus Christ tearing down their philosophy. He's, re- he's, he's doing this out of um, respectful boldness 
rather than arrogant pride. And it's important because it's winsome rather than combative. I think as Christians, we spend a lot of time trying to prove other people's beliefs wrong instead of encouraging other people's willingness to learn and grow. And we don't do the hard work of building bridges with them. Instead, we burn bridges. I think, I see this, when I was a waiter at Dewey's here in Kirkwood for two years while I was in seminary, I saw it a, a number of times where um, people would leave tracks. I'm sorry if this offends you, but I was a waiter and it offends the waiters. People would leave tracks on the tables that talked to them about Jesus. And some of them would be, I saw at least one of them, it was in the, it was in the shape of a folded up $20 bill. And so you walk up, the waiter would walk up to the table and be like, wow, a $20 tip, this is awesome. And then you pick it up and realize that it's fake and you open it up and inside it says something like, Jesus is worth more than money. And they got no tip for their hard work, but the, the person leaving it thinks that that's going to minister to them. They're, when we do things like that, that's an extreme case maybe, but we're burning bridges rather than building bridges with people for the sake of the gospel. Paul goes on and he connects with them even further by quoting, he quotes their own philosophers. And their, um, in verse 28 he says, he quotes a, a song that was sung to Zeus. And it says, in him we live and move and have our being. And then he quotes another Stoic philosopher and he says, for we indeed are his offspring. So these phrases that he's using, he's using to make connections with them, with the one true God. Just like he's connected the Old Testament heritage to Jesus, now he's connecting their own scriptures. He doesn't, um, he does not go to them and retell the story of the Israelites. He doesn't go to them and talk to them about the Jewish faith. In fact, he doesn't even mention the Bible one time. But does he compromise the truth of the gospel? I don't think he does at all. In fact, he makes a very strong and convincing case that, that Jesus is the fulfillment of their religiosity. And this is the very epitome of what it means to respect and connect with people. So here's my question for us today. We see the two interactions that Paul had. We, we see how they're very different, yet with the same truth gospel message that he's not ignoring. And here's my question for us. If, if you're committed to Christ, if I'm committed to Christ, if we, are, if we are committed to the gospel, do we approach our relationships with our neighbors and our coworkers and our family members and whoever else might be involved, might, we might have a relationship throughout the days, do we approach them with this default position that, that this person deserves respect because they are an image bearer of God? In your heart, are you quick to judge or are you quick to respect people? As I was, um, as I was preparing this sermon over the last couple of weeks, um, this, that was really a tough question for me to ask myself. It's a really hard exercise. Um, because it doesn't leave any room for me to have any judgmentalism in my heart. It leaves no room for racism. It leaves no room for classism. God had every right to disregard me as despicable and unworthy of salvaging. But instead he chose to condescend to a people that are unworthy he became like us, and he stood in the gap in our place, and he took the punishment that was due me for my despicableness. If you're here today and you trust Christ, that's the reason that we go and we respect people and we connect with them. That's the reason that we do the hard work of connecting with people and bringing them face-to-face -face with the gospel 
of a good and gracious Savior. And if you're here today and you don't know Christ, I want to apologize to you if you've ever been offended by someone who hasn't done that right. It isn't right that we do that to people. This is, this is why I love my job so much. Because I get the privilege of proving to teenagers that they matter to God. Sorry. So often in youth ministry, we inadvertently teach kids to fake it. We teach them that faking faith is the way to go. We don't do the hard work of communicating the gospel with them in a way that they understand. The teenagers are like the Epicureans and the Stoics, yet we talk to them like the Jews in the synagogues. And so when they want to please the adults in their lives, they end up, gosh, I'm sorry. They end up learning to quote the Bible, but they never know what the Bible means. They fake it, and I don't blame them. One of the best things we can do to care for a teenager's heart, and to care for anybody's heart for that matter, is to admit to them that we don't have all the answers. And, to, and that when we do that, it proves to them that they don't have to have all the answers to be acceptable to us or to God. Paul is a master of connecting with his audience. He's driven by a love for whomever he was communicating with. He cared deeply about people, people that he didn't even know, and it was this love for others that caused him to write Bible verses like, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourselves. He doesn't say in humility consider other Christians better than yourselves. He says consider others better than yourselves. That includes everybody because they're made in the image of God. He was compelled by the love that he saw in Jesus, and he was compelled by the love that Christ showed him when he brought him low on the road to Damascus. And that's the same love that we should be compelled with when we talk to people about the gospel. So let me finish with this observation. I think that our pride drives us to respond different ways to this message. Some of us are too prideful to humble ourselves and view others with compassion. Maybe we're a self-made man that we've done it all. We've had hard circumstances and we've pulled ourselves up by our bootstraps and we've made it. And so now we don't want to, to look at anybody else with compassion and, and love. Instead, we have contempt for them because they haven't made it like I have. That's the way Paul was and God brought him low. He changed his life by blinding him on the road to Damascus. And so I pray that maybe someone in here might need to be brought low like Paul was. Others of you today might be hindered by a different kind of pride, and this one hits home because this is me, the kind of pride that paralyzes us from doing anything. We're afraid to build relationships because we feel inadequate. And this is the sneaky kind of pride because it disguises itself as humility. In reality, it's just the pride of not wanting to be known, be seen as incompetent. And this is the kind of pride I deeply identify with. And maybe today, you're here as a dad, or a mom, or a boss, who's embarrassed to have a spiritual conversation with a kid, with your own kid, for fear that you won't have all the answers. And for fear that what the vulnerability might create in your family. Maybe you're a kind of stoic and you're shy, and you shy away from the vulnerability because somewhere along the line, you were made to believe that vulnerability means weakness. 
Maybe it was never modeled for you, so you don't know what to do, and so you don't even know where to begin. Well, I hope that today this passage encourages you to explore what true humility is. Christ on the cross has the power to take away all our fear and all of our inadequacies. Hebrews says that when Christ went to the cross, he scorned its shame. There is no shame in the gospel. Paul knew this. That's why when he was run out of places because of jealousy and contempt in people's heart for him in the gospel, he was able to shake it off and move on to the next place because his, his, he knew that the power came not from himself and what he had to offer, but alone from the power of Christ. So I encourage you today to trust Christ and talk to your kids about Jesus. Even if you don't have all the answers, even if you don't have any answers, if you trust Jesus, you do have the answer whether you know it or not. And the answer is always full of grace. The answer is always full of truth. It's always full of love. It's always exposing our hearts, and it always leads us to salvation. Through the power of Christ's death and resurrection, Paul did the hard work of being all things to all men. 1 Corinthians 9 says, chapter 9, uh, chapter nine verse 19 through 23, it says, for Paul is writing to the church in Corinth, one of the churches that he planted on his missionary journeys. And he's writing them a letter, talking to them and encouraging them. He says, for, for though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all, that I might win more of them. To the Jews, I became like a Jew in order to win Jews. To those under the law, I became as one under the law, though not being under the law myself, that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law, I became as one outside the law. Not that I'm outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, so that I might win those outside the law. To the weak, I have become weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. I do it all for the sake of the gospel, that I may share with them in its blessings. Let me pray.